Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate communities shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. We'd love for you to join us on Sundays at 9.30 or 11 right here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We're calling this year the Year of the Bible as we read and study through the Bible cover to cover. On August 25th, we'll kick off the New Testament along with home-based small groups who will study the weekly reading together. If you'd like more information about any of this, visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Good morning. Will you please stand with me as we read our teaching text today? Philippians 4, 10 through 13. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this place to come and gather um, and be encouraged of who you are and what you're doing in us every day. So God, I just pray um, that you speak through Pastor John today and that his words um, would be yours and not his own and that we would all have hearts and ears ready to receive what you have to teach us. Amen. Amen. You can all be seated. I've learned to preach when there are wasps in the room, and I've learned to preach when there are not wasps in the room. And I have a a paper towel in my back pocket so that if I see it, I'm taking this sucker out. (laughs) We had a massacre here at the church this last week. We sprayed several times, and hundreds of wasps were dead, and we vacuumed them up. We've got one lone survivor, okay? So keep right here. Stay right here with me the whole time, okay? How many people are running the marathon, the Route 66 marathon or half next week? Okay. If you guys all really love Ben, you're not doing it. (laughs) You do not get credit like the rest of these people. Well, if you really love your church, I know that they're shooting off the first gun at 8 o'clock. Run a sub three-hour marathon and get back to the 11 o'clock service. Uh, Next week we're having, we're calling it a Vision Sunday, and we're sharing just what's next, what's in the next chapter of our story as a church. Uh, this year, we've done the year of the Bible. Next year, uh, you're going to hear uh, what we're doing. And, uh, but I hope it's, it's going to be a fun Sunday, some big things uh, happening next week. So please come back for that uh, after you finish your marathon and you had your Michelob light and a couple granola bars, okay? <laughs> they always show up after marathons and 5Ks, the Michelob light. Well, uh, there's, a, there's this device in storytelling, and it happens in Scripture too, where uh, a tool that an author can use to really amp up the intrigue and capture your attention and make you ask questions and engage with the story in a way that you wouldn't. And this, this device is called gapping. We're creating a gap in the story. A gap is a little bit of information that the author doesn't give you that makes you like want to stay engaged in the conversation. Uh, gaps definitely happen in the Bible, and you learn to notice them as you're going through Scripture. Uh, think about uh, the, the story of the prodigal son, where you have the story of a father and you have two sons. Sometimes there's a gap, like there's a gap in that the mom is not a part of the story. 
Evidently, Jesus did not think that was a piece of information that was really crucial to telling the story. The story is about the love of the Father and sons who rebelled in different ways. You have other kinds of gaps, like in Genesis 1 through 3, where there's a piece of information not given because the author wants your attention elsewhere. One of those is like uh, we're introduced to this serpent in Genesis 1 through 3, but we don't know anything about the origins of this serpent. It feels like a pretty important detail, but it's missing. And it seems to be the case that the author does not want us asking questions primarily about the origin story behind this serpent, but wants us to focus our attention on the human responsibility in the story. How Adam and Eve, of their own volition, chose to rebel against their Creator, and the consequences uh, followed. These are all gaps. They're gaps that come in human relationships where you think you know somebody really well, and then they do something that just vexes you. You think, I don't understand why they responded to that. We had a great relationship, and then I brought up this topic, and boy, things sure got weird. It recasts a person in your mind as a mystery. That's a gap. I don't know why they behaved in the way that they did. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul gives us a little gap. There's a little uh, question that is left unresolved as he marches through the end of this letter. Uh, Paul, the purpose of Philippians is Paul is reaching out from prison and thanking the Philippians who renewed their concern in him for him and sent some people to take care of his basic needs. And so he says, look, I'm so glad that you've cared for me in this way, but I have learned the secret of being content all the time, well-fed or hungry, warm or cold. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. And you think, well, what is it? What is the, what's the secret? You didn't like spill the beans on what it is, but he says, I have learned the secret to being content in all situations. Because if there is a secret to being content, to finding a way to be okay no matter what happens, we desperately need to hear the secret. And why? It's because our collective and perpetual state of discontentment is almost literally killing us. There's a direct link between affluence and anxiety. Affluence is just, just being rich, having access to uh, help, having access to luxuries. Now, you might say, look, I'm not a person of means. I'm, I don't live in luxury. I'm not an affluent person. But if you consider your quality of life to the normal person in the world today, among the, the, tr the billions and trillions of people who exist, how many people live in the world? Seven trillion, something like that? Am I right? Okay. What? Billion, trillion would be a lot more, wouldn't it, Joe? <laughs> the seven billion, we live really well. And compare, compare how you live to how people have lived throughout human history. We are all in the top 10% of wealthy people from, from a grand historical view. And the pressure that so many of us feel to, to compete to measure up to other people in, in looks and quality of living and our stuff and our public profile, this urgency that many of us feel to compete and to measure up is crushing. And our lack of contentment fueled by the images of other people's stuff and looks and friendship can cause anxiety and depression and suicide to increase and cause our self-worth and our, our sense of like purpose in life to decrease. Several authors have called this phenomenon, this impulse to compete in a wealthy society, affluenza. Affluenza. It's affluence 
plus influenza, the flu. It's living in this wealthy society and feeling the impulse to compete is making us sick. In a 2005 book, Clive Hamilton, who's an Australian, gave these definitions of affluenza. Affluenza is the bloated, sluggish, and unfulfilled feeling that results from efforts to keep up with the Joneses. Or it's an epidemic of stress, overwork, waste, and indebtedness caused by the dogged pursuit of the Australian dream. All developed countries have their own version of a dream. Or it's an unsustainable addiction to economic growth. He goes on to say this, As a rule, no matter how much money people have, they feel they need more. Why else would people in rich countries like Australia and America keep striving to become richer, often at the expense of their own happiness and that of their own families? Even the mega-rich seem unable to accept that they have all they need, always comparing themselves unfavorably with their neighbors. Most people cling to the belief that more money means more happiness, and yet, when they reach the financial goals they've set for themselves, they find they do not feel happier, except perhaps fleetingly. Rather than question the whole project, they engage in an internal dialogue that goes like this. I hoped that getting to this income level would make me feel contented. I do have more stuff, but it doesn't seem to have done the trick. I obviously just need to set my goals higher. I'm sure I'll be happier when I'm earning an extra $10,000 because then I'll be able to buy the other things that I want. In a book by the same title in 2002, DeGraff, Wan, and Naylor argue this, affluenza's costs and consequences are immense, though often concealed. Untreated, the disease of affluenza can cause permanent discontent. In our view, this epidemic is rooted in the obsessive, almost religious quest for economic expansion that has become the core principle of what is called the American dream. It's rooted in the idea that every generation will be materially wealthier than its predecessor and that somehow each of us can pursue that single-minded end without damaging the countless other things we hold dear. This phenomenon that some have called affluenza goes even further back. This comes from a 1928 article in the Detroit Free Press. Robert Quinlan said, Americanism, that's his term, is using money you haven't earned to buy things you don't need to impress people you don't like. Many of us feel genuine pressure not only to meet our material needs, and like picture Maslow's hierarchy, not only to meet the, the basic and the primary the, the needs that we have, but also to appear to have met needs in such a way, like of such a quality and such a quantity that we are keeping up with the, the people that we know, the people closest to us. We're measuring up in every category, our cars, our education, our clothing, our travel, our home. And while for the, like for the most part, this is not motivated in a sinister kind of way, we see it as being completely sane and in fact intrinsic to living in life as we know it these days not recognizing the harm that affluenza can do to our souls, how it actually robs us of the thing that we are seeking in it, which is joy. And James, the brother of Jesus, saw this phenomenon even earlier on in human history in the first century and saw how people were putting a religious spin on this behavior. What causes fights and quarrels among you? You might add anxiety. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. 
You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You don't have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasure. This discontent, this covetousness, this comparison trap that so many of us fall prey to is a curse. It brings out the worst in us. It causes us to lose our perspective. And it causes us to overlook and to take for granted the ways that we've already been blessed, those ways that other people look at us and think, man, I wish I could have it as good as them. So if Paul learned the secret to being truly okay, if you learn the secret of being content with plenty or with little, being full or being hungry, we need to hear it. And so this morning, I want to share from the life of Paul and from the text that we've just read three secrets, three antidotes to affluenza. And it's ultimately going to be a contentment, three secrets to uh, cultivating contentment from the life of Paul. The first secret is this. We see this in the Philippians 4 text is that God helps those who want to grow in contentment. God helps those who want to grow in contentment. Let's look again at what Paul said in Philippians 4.13. I can do all this. Now, you probably read all things growing up. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can dunk. I can, like, make it to the homecoming court. That's how you quoted it as a teenager. But look at this translation. I can do all of this. What is all of this? Being content in every situation. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. Philippians 4.13 is one of the most quoted and probably misquoted verses in the Bible, being appropriated for all sorts of ends that Paul was probably not imagining. But in the context, this is about God giving us the strength to be content no matter what situation we're in. God can heal our affluenza. Now, a ton of times, we bring our anxiety to God, the anxiety of living in a Western, developed culture. We say, God, would you help me deal with my anxiety, my, my stress? And the stress is often as a result of living in an affluent society where we feel the need to compete in this rat race and measure up with other people. The stress, the anxiety is a natural byproduct of living in that kind of environment. And we say, so God, would you help me deal with these symptoms, this anxiety? And God says, I don't want to just help you with the symptoms. I want to address the root cause that's making you unwell. God wants to help us step out of the rat race of competition with each other, of, of feeling that pressure, that burden to compete and to measure up in every imaginable category. He wants to address the, the thing that's robbing you of life and joy, the pressures of always trying and always feeling like you need to measure up. And those pressures are tangible and real. It, it starts happening when you like begin dropping your kid off at Mother's Day out and they're six months old and on Valentine's Day, the other parents are doing these elaborate gifts for these babies who don't know what they're inheriting and you think, it's begun. We have to, we're beginning to compete now. The, the pressure to compete and measure up is so great, at times it feels impossible to take yourself out of the rat race, out of that competition. This is my own paraphrase of Matthew 19. Very truly, I tell you, it is hard for someone with affluenza to enter the kingdom of heaven. Who then can be saved? The disciples asked. Jesus responded, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Paul says, I can do all things. 
I have learned to be truly okay all of the time, no matter what circumstances, through Christ who gives me strength. God uh, helps the people who want to grow in contentment. There is divine supply to match your need. As we talk about each of these, these secrets, I want to partner it with a question for reflection. And I would just ask you, as you journal this week or as you process over lunch, ask the question, in what ways am I in the rat race? Or you could say it like this, where is there evidence that I am suffering from affluenza? So pay attention to your anxieties, pay attention to your insecurities, pay attention to the places where you feel the need to measure up to other people because it seems like they've got a leg up on you. Where are those places in your life, those evidences that you're in the rat race, that you're suffering from affluenza? And then I would just ask you the question, do you want out? Do you want out of the race? Do you want out of that system of stress and trying to compete and measure up that stress that is so palpable it keeps us awake at night? Do you want out? And if you want out, I'd encourage you to ask for help. This is James 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. Without finding fault means there's no judgment here. If you lack wisdom, talk to him about it. He would love to help you. This wisdom will be given to you. Some of you in this room will know a former mentor and colleague of mine, Jim Linderman, who was a pastor at Asbury, a truly godly man. And Jim, when he was a younger man pastoring in Arkansas, drove just this jalopy of a car. And he knew it was a jalopy and he was embarrassed by it. And Jim is driving all around Arkansas doing pastoral ministry and embarrassed every time he pulls into town because of this beater of a car that he has. And he remembers like being truly angry that he couldn't change his situation. He couldn't uh, afford to like a car payment or to go in debt. He couldn't afford to get a new car. And so he remembers driving down the highway and telling God, look, I need you to turn down my wanter. My wanter is the thing that is making me uncomfortable and ungrateful for this mode of transportation that I had. I need you to take away the desire for something more and something better. And Jim would tell you he remembers the day and he remembers where he was on the highway when God did it. He's going down the road and he just sensed this discontentment taken from him. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and he'll give it to you. God helps those who want to grow in contentment. That's the first secret. The second, the, the second secret or the second check is this. Uh, it's check your trajectory, okay? Check your trajectory. Now, when you're going to go on a road trip, you fuel up, you get your coffee, you're in the car, everybody's buckled in, you generally have in mind where you're going to go when you go on a road trip. Typically, unless you're a crazy person or a seven on the Enneagram, you've picked out a destination ahead of time, and like you know where you want to go, and you've asked like, like Google or Apple to tell you how to get there. You have a you've set yourself on a trajectory toward ending up at a destination that you selected. Each of us drive our own lives toward a particular end toward a particular destination. We put ourselves on a trajectory where we're hoping to, to hit an outcome, to achieve an outcome, to arrive at a destination. And most of the time, these ends or these destinations, the trajectory that we've set ourselves on is unstated. We follow this trajectory unreflectively. We do it unconsciously. 
we are driven by our internal values and our wants and our loves and our desires, our deepest longings. And it may take work for us a lifetime to figure out, here's what's really driving me. Here's what's causing me to get up in the morning. Here's the end, the the trajectory I've set myself on. If the end of your life is being rich, you can be confident that affluenza is going to be your traveling companion. As we think about the ministry of the Apostle Paul, what what was driving Paul's life? What was the end? What was the trajectory that he set himself on? Uh, We see this in Philippians chapter 1. Paul says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. He's anticipating being put to death for being a Christian. And he says, "I, I anticipate that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body by life or by death. For me, and then he gives us a sense of his, his internal logic, to live is Christ. For me, the means of living and the end of living is Christ. And if I die, I am with him, and that's better. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul was ambitious about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God and knowing Christ was his end. He said that in chapter 3. I want to know Christ to know the power of his resurrection, even to attain to his sufferings. I want to know Christ. That was his ambition. He was not ambitious about accumulating wealth. And because he was not ambitious about accumulating wealth, but about seeking the kingdom of God and knowing Jesus, he was okay if he had wealth, he could bear it. And he was also okay if he he did not have wealth, he could also bear being poor because wealth wasn't his chief goal. A great way to begin unpacking in your own mind your values on this topic and your relationship with stuff is to take an impending purchase or investment that you want to make. It may be a car that you want to buy. It may be something that you want to do to your house. Take that purchase or take that desire and ask the question, why, a bunch of times and see where the answers to why lead you. Okay, I want to redo my bathroom. Why? Well, it's currently out of date. Why does that matter? Well, I want to have a house where my, like, things are up to date. Why? Um, I want people to like the house, my house, when they come over to my house. Well, why? Well, I want them to be somewhat, like, feel like I'm a person who has earned enough things to do this, and I steward my things well, and they think well of me. Keep following the whys and see what happens. And if you get five, six, seven whys deep and you begin to discover what's really motivating you, and if seven whys deep, you may discover that what's motivating you is insecurity. You may find that what's motivating you is discontentment. Now, you may get to the bottom of it and think, God has just blessed me. I want to steward the stuff I have. Maybe it's motivated by a good spot. I don't believe universally that we should not redo our bathrooms. But I think we should follow the why and see what that teaches us about what's really driving us, the trajectory that we've set ourselves on. So you could ask, in reflecting on these questions of the trajectory you're on, like, what's driving you? Five, six, seven, wise, deep, what trajectory are you really on? What end, what destination is driving the choices that you're making from day to day? I've quoted this before, but this comes from a Donald Miller book. Donald Miller said, if you watched a movie about a guy who wanted a Volvo 
and worked for years to get it, you wouldn't cry at the end when he drove off the lot testing the windshield wipers. You wouldn't tell your friends you saw a beautiful movie or go home and put a record on to think about the story you'd seen. Truth is, you wouldn't remember that movie a week later, except you'd feel robbed and want your money back. Nobody cries at the end of a movie about a guy who wants a new car. But we spend years actually living those stories and expect our lives to be meaningful. But the truth is, if what we choose to do with our lives won't make a story meaningful, it won't make a life meaningful either. First secret to to, to battling affluenza is, is dealing with contentment. God wants to help those who God wants to help those who wants to grow in contentment. The second tool to use is to check your trajectory, what's motivating you. But the third one is, is really simple. It's just that a content life is a better life. A content life is a better life. Paul says this uh, in 1 Timothy 6. He's talking to a young pastor. Young people feel a lot of pressure to prove themselves. especially now, to live up to the quality of living that their parents have at 55, we're trying to have at 25. In your 20s, you're trying to prove yourself. 30s, trying to prove yourself. So Paul's talking to a young pastor. He says, look, the people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. He doesn't say money itself is the root of all kinds of evil. It's the love of money, which is the root of all kinds of evil. It's like a gateway drug to all kinds of harm you can inflict in your life. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But then see what he does. He says, he says this next. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we have brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, that will be enough for us. Those who want to get rich. Well, doesn't everybody want to get rich? If you have to choose between rich and not rich, I'm, ch- I'm probably going to choose rich and hope I develop the skills to manage it along the way. But Paul's not talking about, he's talking about those who the desire to get rich has like taken root in their heart. It's affluenza. Those whose end is wealth accumulation, who love money, set themselves up for all kinds of pain and grief. Biggie Smalls explained it to us long ago in the 90s. The more money we come across, the more problems that we see. And Willy Wonka lied to us. He tells uh, Charlie at the very end of the, the Gene Wilder version of the movie, did you hear the story of the man who got everything he always wanted? He lived happier ever after. That's not true. Read the autobiographies of all of your favorite celebrities. Nine and a half out of ten of them have lived tragic lives. They've achieved these great outcomes, and yet they are personally miserable. It has cost them their family, their, their, their emotional sense of wellness, their privacy. They got everything they always wanted, and yet it didn't deliver on the goods. Paul says, godliness with contentment, and he uses financial language, is gain. Godliness plus contentment is profit. It's moving up and to the right. It's better to be content and to know God than to live in the rat race forever, to give your life trying to measure up. But that's a really hard truth to hear when the world is screaming the opposite in stereo, 
when you're being told and reminded that you're not enough, that you're not measuring up, that you're not competing, when other people's family pictures look way better than yours, and it's December 15th and you haven't even thought about doing family pictures in the first place. So, so I would just say, like, if you're here this morning and you're aware of the rat race within yourself, I think Jesus has empathy for you. For those of us who just, who like feel truly stressed out because this is what we do in our society in middle-class America, this is what we do. We try to compete. This is our normal. This is the gospel that we have heard as, as citizens of this country, of a high achieving. The, the, what you do in life is you achieve, you earn, you prove yourself, you make a name for yourself, and it's stressing you out. I think that Jesus has tremendous empathy for you. For you students who are feeling the pressure to, to measure up and compete uh, scholastically or trying to figure out what you're going to do next, there's so much pressure to prove yourselves, I think Jesus has empathy for you. I think he really cares. And for all of us who, who are aware of the degrees to which we suffer from affluenza, we find ourselves in the rat race. I think there's an invitation from Jesus to take ourselves out of the game, to cultivate contentment. Paul says this to Timothy, talking about the desire to get rich and the dangers that come with it. He says, you, Timothy, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life for which you were called. If you hear the voice of God whispering to you, there's a way out of this, take it. Fight for it. Flee from affluenza and run toward the things that matter the most. A question for reflection would be, what steps can I take to flee from the temptation of wealth? Where are there places in your life where you could make a public statement about the kind of earning potential that you have or what you can afford? Where can you flee from this temptation to compete, the temptation of wealth? And what's a practical step you can take to pursue what matters. I generally love all things Bill Murray, and Bill Murray had a movie called The Razor's Edge in the early uh, mid-80s. He made it right before Ghostbusters. Uh, some of you have heard me mention Razor's Edge. It's a great movie. He plays Larry Darrell, who grows up in this affluent community in uh, New England, and ends up getting shipped over and, and uh, being in World War I as a medic. And as he comes back from seeing the atrocities of war, he has a different perspective on the luxury in which many of his friends and family are living in, and it disrupts one of his most intimate relationships. And he tells his fiancée, I've been given a second chance at life. I don't want to waste it on a big house and a new car every year and a bunch of friends who want a big house and a new car every year. That's one of those moments of clarity where you realize this is not ultimate. The quest for stuff the desire and an instinct to compete with other people and measure up, it's not ultimate, and it really, truly doesn't matter. One of, uh, one of the times that I've gone through counseling, I was having difficulty speaking up in meetings and feeling anxious about what were people going to think about me, and my counselor said, look, there's the 20-second rule. People will think about you for 20 seconds, and then they're going to go back to thinking about themselves. And the same true thing is true in these conversations where we are so conscious of not standing out, of not being different from others and like, way, and like, like going along with affluenza and trying to comp compete with our public persona. People may think about you for 20 seconds and then they're going to move on and go back to thinking about themselves. 
So why would we succumb to being driven by a love of the approval of others instead of being driven by the values, the ends that we would say matter most to us? How are you going to spend the life that you have? One of my favorite scriptures to cite in funerals comes from the Psalms. It says, teach me to number my days that I may gain a heart of wisdom. We only have so many days. This is the life that we have. This is it. This is it's happen- how it's happening. The way that you're stewarding your time and your resources and your, your sense of insecurity, the way that you're stewarding your mind and your heart, this is it. This is the arena in which we get to exercise our volition, our agency. You get to choose what you do with it. And you don't have to spend your life in the rat race. You don't have to suffer forever from affluenza, from the, from the desire to compete and to measure up. There's a way out. And the gospel, being shaped by the gospel, gives us this alternate narrative, this other way to live that is so, so, can so open up our imagination to joys that we could not have experienced if we're always keeping our head down in the rat race. For those of us who are willing to apprentice ourselves to Jesus, who are willing to unlearn the things that ail us, to those who will ask for help and will follow where the Spirit leads, there's a possibility and an opportunity for freedom. So I ask you, what's the current trajectory of your life? What is the end toward which you're consciously or unconsciously navigating decisions day by day? Is it getting you where you want to go? And how's the Holy Spirit inviting you today, whether you'd say you have money or don't, to free yourself from the chains of affluenza and live in the dignity of image-bearing as a son or daughter? Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened and anxious, all of you who have been spending your energy on proving yourself, trying to make a name for yourself, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and gentle in spirit, and with me you're going to find rest for your souls. Jesus would invite us to yoke up with him, to learn how to follow the the rhythms of life with Jesus, how Jesus would live as if he were us. We yoke up with Jesus and we learn from him how to live like him, how to live like the Apostle Paul so that we can bear up in any circumstances, having plenty or living in want being rich or being poor. Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened and anxious, all of you who are stressed out, all of you who are longing to impress and hunger to find a deeper sense of self that you can find in your creator. I don't believe that Jesus wants to shame you or rub your face in your failures. I think he wants to lift your head and give you dignity help you to stand on your own two feet, not laboring for the approval of your peers and strangers and people you don't like, but living for the approval of him who loved you, who laid down his life, who proves that you are lovely simply because he loves you. He invites you to come today. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that we're, we're in your presence today. You're the, you're the no-judgment God who wants to give wisdom to everyone who asks. 
If you're just open to the work of the Holy Spirit today, if, if something that has been shared just resonates with your heart and you long to have a deeper sense of, of meaning, if you want out of the rat race, if you want to just learn to be content in your own skin, maybe you just pray in the quiet of your heart, like, come Holy Spirit, manifest your presence in my heart and in my mind. Teach me how to not care about the approval of others, but to care deeply about your approval. Jesus wants to give you wisdom. He wants to pour his grace out on you. So just invite him. Got to pray for students in the room, middle schoolers and high schoolers who already feel stressed out about ACTs years in advance because they're thinking about this competition. I pray for the, the college students in the room we're thinking about, oh gosh, I have to get my major right, and what am I going to do with my life, and how I'm going to pay bills. I just I pray for the college students that you give them a deep sense that you're with them and you love them. There's not a pressure to be a 55-year-old today. God wants to walk with you through all the years of your life. You're going to be okay. For the 20 and 30-something, for the 40 and 50-something, for the 60s and 70-year-olds in the room, at different stages of our journey and development who all desire approval from our peers. I just want to remind you, Jesus already loves you. You're already approved. While, we're, while you were a sinner, he approved you and loved you. And Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would come, that through the table, as we take into our bodies the, the proof of Jesus' love for us, that that truth would resonate and echo through every part of our being. And we would know ourselves to be people who are loved by God, truly loved not needing to prove a thing. You are my son. You are my daughter that I love. I'm pleased with you. You're good. As we gather around the table, God, would you send your Holy Spirit? Make it be for us so much more than bread and juice. Make it be for us a means through which we experience the life of God. May that life nourish and sustain us. Help us to be content in plenty and in want and to live with purpose, being ambitious for the coming of the kingdom of God, living as ambassadors of that kingdom. I pray all this in Jesus' name.